Let's open them this morning to Philippians chapter 1, please. Philippians chapter 1. I'm sure Pastor Gabe in his time with you has walked through at least a Bible study, if not an entire series on the book of Philippians. If I'm not sure where he's currently at at this point, but a well-known passage of Scripture. And as I've already alluded to, it was my heart in what the Lord would have me bring to you this morning. And that is simply a, uh, an ongoing reminder for us as to the importance of gratitude the importance of having a thankful heart. I don't know if we can ever be thankful enough, and I think it's one of those characteristics or traits that's very easy for us to forget about. We know we're supposed to be, but it's easy for us to get off track when it comes to this area of gratitude or thanksgiving. And since it's fresh in our minds, this is where the I feel the Lord has directed me to share and direct your thoughts this morning. I don't know if you've ever uh, found a diary and maybe was bold enough to maybe open it up and maybe look at it, even though maybe you felt like, I don't know if I should do that. Maybe you, in in cleaning uh, an attic or helping someone move or a parent or you, you come across an old letter and you open it up and you start reading it and, and you, you sense a dearness or a, a, a heartfelt devotion that's in that letter. If you've ever experienced that, then in a very real way, you've experienced, I think, the heart of what the Apostle Paul had when he's writing this letter of Philippians. You know where he's at. I trust you do. He's in a Roman prison. He's, he's at least chained to a praetorian guard or an imperial guard. He has recently just suffered shipwreck And he is now caught up in the confines of the Roman Empire and their judicial system. And he's waiting to appeal to Caesar. And he is he's anxious to do that, to clear his name and to uh, also get finally to Rome as he has prayed for many years. The Lord has finally brought him here. But he's he's in a confinement. And yet he writes for us by the Holy Spirit a letter that is filled with joy. A letter that many have argued that is the theme, joy. But it's not just joy. There is a gratitude that is deep in the heart of Paul. And I think that is what is the essence or the core here as he opens up this wonder, wonderful letter. This opening salutation in verses 1 and 2, he identifies himself and, of course, those to whom he writes I'll just read those for us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here speaks about his gratitude and joy at the very beginning of the letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3, really through verse 11, he begins to emote a sense. We, We get the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he is sharing from the very depth of his heart what he, how he feels with this wonderfully dear congregation. The Apostle Paul knew the fullness of Holy Spirit given gratitude. 
He knew what it meant to have a joyful heart despite the circumstances that he currently finds himself in, and that's in a Roman prison, house arrest, chained to this imperial guard. He knew that. He was, he was consumed by it. He was governed by it. He knew it, but we don't all know it very well, perhaps as well as Paul did. And he writes, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to remind this dear congregation that they need to be reminded of it as well. They are to have the experience that comes from having a grateful heart. Now, we'll get into chapter 1 here, but before we do, I would like to take you backwards, back into Psalm chapter 42. When Tom read chapter 45, I thought, oh, that's so close to where we were going to look back to, which is wonderful, that whole passage of book 2 of the Psalms. But if you would just turn back with me to Psalm chapter 42, please. I want to show you another man, before we get into the Apostle Paul's life, that is a little bit of a contrast for us in light of Philippians chapter 1. We find another man who's in distress. We find another man who perhaps is in a form of depression. We find another man who knew he ought to have gratitude, and he knew he ought to have joy, but he couldn't seem to grasp it. He's struggling. We, we don't know who wrote this psalm. You'll see there under the little prickaby or the, the transcript there under the uh, uh, chapter 42, it says, to the choir mas- master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So we don't know which son. Many commentators actually attribute this psalm to David. It could be David or it could be a sons of Korah. But either way, we don't know. But what we do know is we've We've been given a glimpse of someone who's in distress, who's struggling mightily. And so whoever wrote this psalm is a struggling person, somewhat despairing. Let's, let's just look at the first couple verses here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. We'll just stop there for now, and we, we see an anguish already beginning in the life of the psalmist here. He's struggling. He's somewhat despairing. And yet at the same time, you get a sense that he knows that's not how he wants to be. But he can't seem to crawl out out of his pit that he's in. He introduces us to the depression here in these first four verses. There's an unsatisfied longing for God. He says, when, when shall I come and appear before God? He wants to be there, but he's not there. The sense of loneliness is is tasted. The sense of alienation is is sensed. And he has this intense desire to draw near to God, to be near to him. But he feels alone. He feels as if God has abandoned him, if God is not around. 
And he wonders how long is he going to have to wait before God finally shows up. In fact, he's having to deal with the ridicule of those who say, where is your God? In the midst of this sadness, his enemies are taunting him with that very thing in verse 3. And yet he remembers his privileges that he's lost. It says here in verse 4, his sadness, things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession. He's remembering fondly his opportunity and his time to be with God, where he worshiped God in the sanctuary. And he's longing for that. It's, it's a privilege that he seems to have lost. He's, he's dispossessed from the people and his land, and the situation is, is wearing on him. And notice how he reacts to his, his somewhat depression with his self-interrogation in verse 5. He asks, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so he responds with this, with this growing sense of loneliness and, and sense that he's in distress with a, a, a question of his own heart. He knows. It's almost as though he's saying, I know the truth, so I shouldn't be feeling this way. It's almost like he's cut it out. I, I know the truth. I need to apply the truth. There's no reason for me to be in despair, oh, my soul. I know God hasn't left me. I know I'm not alone. I know my enemies are wrong when they falsely accuse me or make fun of me. I know they're wrong. I know that. God is powerful. God is concerned. Don't behave this way. We can just even pause there and just even ask the question. I'm sure he's not the only one who has felt this way, right? I mean, we've all felt that way at one time or another. We know the truth. And I know you well enough simply because of your pastor and what you stand for and what you believe to know that you know the truth. And yet sometimes that doubt will creep into our mind and we struggle with, but I'm alone. I feel alone. I don't, I don't feel like the Lord's answering my prayer. If so, I don't know when he's going to do it. And there's that sense of for, foreboding and there's a distress that builds up with that. And if we're not careful, we can start believing that. But having said all that, after asking him this question, look at verse 6. He, he stops himself in verse 5. He tells himself what to do. <laughs> he knows the truth. But look at verse 5. Or verse 6, excuse me. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He, he knows the truth, but he falls right back into his old thinking. He knows that truth, but he just can't apply it. It's almost as though it's a picture of a guy who's just been going through a tough time. He, he finally gets a breather, and, it, and the, the trials of life just come pounding on him all over again. And maybe you're not going through that particular situation. I'm quite positive you probably know someone who is. There's always someone in our life, if it's not us, who feels like, I can't get a break. I'm trying to do the right thing. I know the truth, but man, it's hard. And that brings about a life of distress, a life of anxiety, a life of, 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 
of anxiety and stress. One breaker smashing again and again and again. He says in verse 8, look, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He says the Lord will command, he says the Lord will command his righteousness, verse 8, his steadfast love, his song will be with me in the night. Again, he, he comes back to where he knows to be true and he goes, verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And so you feel that angst that's in the psalmist's heart. He has to come back at verse 11. It is, he's like he's caught in the cycle. He goes back to the truth, though. He knows what's right. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So he's caught up in this, this, this stressful anxiety. Well, that's, that's our author of Psalm 42. He's in a tough spot, but he's really struggling with what's going on. He can't seem, by reading that, that psalm, you're not going to sense this is a man who has overflowing joy. You don't sense from that psalm, this guy is totally grateful. He's just trying to keep his head above water. All right, let's go back to Philippians chapter 1. As I've already mentioned to you and you know, Paul here finds himself in a very similar situation. Paul's in prison. He's not getting to do what he wants to do. He's bound. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's in a situation quite familiar, in all honesty, to that of the psalmist. Paul's lonely. You know he is. And don't forget, it wasn't that long ago he suffered a massive shipwreck. People are leaving him. Timothy, who was the only one who was really knew his heart, he says in chapter 2, verse 20. In fact, I'll just read that. He says, for I have no one like him, speaking of Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But he, he, he knows he has to send Timothy away, his closest companion. So Timothy's going to go away. He's, he's going to soon feel really alone. Epaphroditus, who brought him a gift from the Philippians, who prompted this very letter, is going to have to go back to the Philippians. So he wouldn't be with him either. So Paul knows what it means to be in isolation, separated. But when we read the book of Philippians, we do not read, why are you downcast, O my soul? There isn't that. There's, there's, there's no groaning. Paul doesn't look and say, he, he doesn't look at his circumstances. He isn't bemoaning his condition. In a sense, we don't get any sense that he's overwhelmed with his loneliness. Furthermore, don't forget, Paul can't join in church. The psalmist was reminiscing of, of being in that, but we don't sense that with Paul. But we know Paul, because he's changed, he doesn't get to fellowship at the local congregation in Rome. He can't join in church. He can't fellowship with the saints there in Rome in the Lord's table. He can't benefit with that. Furthermore, he's mercilessly criticized by those who are outside, the pagans who are outside, who are making fun of him. He's also further criticized, we know this in chapter 1, by 
fellow Christians who are just jealous of him. So he's having to endure that critique and that criticizing, which would create all kinds of misery for the Apostle Paul. So he's right where the psalmist is. But the difference is clear. The psalmist struggling with his circumstances, Paul is rejoicing in God. And the difference, brothers and sisters, is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, you know it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Joy, and joy comes from something. The fruit of the Spirit. Romans 14, 17, Paul again writing to the Romans, he says, We have a kingdom that's righteous and peace and full of joy in the Holy Spirit. And so you have one man focusing on his circumstances and having to do multiple soliloquies just to keep his head above the water, much like we oftentimes do. And then you have another man who's caught in the very midst of what would be distress and be the worst of situations, and yet he is rejoicing. And a heart of gladness and a heart of gratitude is just exuding from the Apostle Paul here in the book of Philippians. It's a beautiful picture. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's the difference We know the Holy Spirit, but he gives us a little bit of a glimpse of that in these first few verses. And I hope to just be able to pick a couple of these things out for us this morning, how I pray for your edification, for all of our edification, and ultimately glory to the Lord. We want to see where is the source of Paul's gratitude. Where does this stemming from? Why why can he be grateful in the midst of a time when it doesn't look like he should be very grateful at all? But he is. And so let's look at that. Verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And we're just, these are going to be pretty self-evident. But the first thing we want to see is gratitude comes from remembering. Or gratitude can come from remembering. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. It's almost as if he's saying that the Holy Spirit produced gratitude has tender memories attached to it. You can usually tell a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit because of their joy. You can usually tell if someone's Holy Spirit filled, not by weird signs and wonders, but by their, their countenance. Do they have a joy that's inexpressible or unexplainable? Are they grateful? Are they grateful? Their their gratitude is manifest in the fact that somehow they have been able, by God's grace, to erase some of the, the, the tape, erase some of the memory in their mind of the hurtful things that have been done against them. They can erase and forget some of the negative things, and they remember the best. Now, you can be guaranteed that not every situation in Philippi was a joy for Paul. In fact, we know that when we read the book of Acts. And yet, he chooses, by the Holy Spirit's power within him, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Gratitude produces a joy of remembering what is good. 
And brothers and sisters, we have that option and we have that ability with every single person in our life, let's be honest. I have the choice of remembering what I want to remember. And we get older, sometimes we don't have that choice. But I know what I can dwell on. And you know what you can dwell on. And if we choose to dwell on the hurts and the pains that someone has caused you, you will not be evidenced with gratitude. I'm not saying we can be naive and just forget everything. That's not biblical either. That's not the point. What do I choose to remember? What do I focus upon? Joy of remembering the good is what Paul is demonstrating for us. Gratitude has a way of causing us to not dwell upon the wounds and the difficulties of a relationship. It's love covering a multitude of sins, like Peter says. And since memories control our attitudes, and they do, it's crucial that we let the Spirit of God produce gratitude within us by way of remembering the good. Isn't that 1 Corinthians 13? Love bears all things, hopes all things. Endures all things. A heart that cultivates good memories. Don't dwell on the negative things. Not, say, not, not pretending that the negatives don't happen. That's another sermon, though. We're to be focused, and Paul here focuses right at the very beginning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I choose to remember what God is doing in your life. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect. So I'll remember that, what God is doing in your life. And you know what? It produces gratitude. It produces a joy in your countenance. There's a second thing in verse 4. He says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. There's that theme of joy again. But where is it coming from? Well, it's gratitude back in verse 3. But now he says, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. He uses the term prayer two times. The word here for prayer means petition. His gratitude is being expressed by not just remembering, but now he's going to do something more proactive, and he's going to actually petition for them. This is powerful. Holy Spirit-generated gratitude finds the highest expression in the delight it receives from praying for others, and specifically for their needs. It shows a selflessness. A petition prayer is consumed on, on the cares and the needs of others. It is consumed with prayer on behalf of others. It's not concerned about its own things or its own happiness, its own comforts, its own fulfillment, own satisfaction. The privilege of petition on behalf of others is part of the role of a saint, of a believer in Christ Jesus, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude, in, in turn, spends its energies on that, uh, remembering rightly And then praying for, have you ever, I'm sure you've heard this, and I I believe it totally to be true. It is very hard to remain angry at somebody that you're praying for. It really is. 
And it's very hard to keep bitterness in your heart when you're truly, genuinely petitioning for that person. Now, it might be for their salvation. But you petition the Lord for them. This is what Paul is saying. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. I'm choosing to pray petitionally for you for joy. That comes from a sense of gratitude and choosing to be reminded of wanting to honor God by how I remember you and then what I pray for you for. Absolutely crucial. It is a privilege to petition on behalf of others, and the church ought to be a place of petition. It ought to be a place of petition. And when someone demonstrates no joy or when someone demonstrates no gratitude in their life, that is not a praying person, beloved. It's not. And we are to be prayerful people. That is the way we communicate with our Lord. And and by God's grace, he has built into the gift of petition an actual overflowing of gratitude. Let's keep looking here. We see the, the privilege of remembering and, and that gratitude comes through petition. Verse 5, because of your partnership, he's going to keep it going, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now he gives us a sense of why he's so grateful, where the joy is stemming from. He's had fellowship with these people for quite a length of time, over a decade and it's a beautiful picture that we, we sense is a key to why Paul has gratitude in the midst of such a difficult circumstance. The psalmist is just trying to keep his head above water. Paul's just saying, I'm gushing with joy for you. I am praising God in gratitude for you, even though I'm the one bound, even though I'm the one who's being made fun of. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They don't let me even fellowship. They're speaking ill of me. But I'm full of gratitude for you. What a change of perspective and of mind. How does this happen? Because gratitude results from fellowship. Gratitude results in fellowship. That's the third point here I think we see in verse 5. You can't keep gratitude to yourself. Have you ever noticed that? When you're grateful for something, what do you want to do? You naturally want to say thank you to the person that you're grateful for. I'm sure most of us had a phenomenal meal, at least the last couple days. And all the work that was put into it. Well, what do you do? Thank you. That was wonderful. Or, or maybe you've received a generous gift or whatever it is, or, or, or an extension, a kindness, and your heart is full. And there is a natural outflow of the heart that says, Thank you. And that can't happen in isolation. You need fellowship for that to happen. And that's the word, by the way, because your partnership, the, I'm reading out of the ESV, partnership is the word koinonia. It's fellowship. Partnership is, is critical here. He knew the joy of fellowship. And he's exulting in the reality of shared life with those who have come alongside of him for the sake of the gospel. And he can be grateful for that, and that sustains him, and that keeps him in the midst of a very lonely and difficult time. 
A generic person is, or a, 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 not a generic, excuse me, a grateful person. A grateful person is someone who is delightful and delighted to be a part of the fellowship. They're not always looking for a way out of the fellowship. They want to be a part of the fellowship because they want to be among the faithful. They know the joy that's produced from that. You show me someone who doesn't want to be a part of the fellowship, specifically in the life of a local church, and I'll show you someone struggling with gratitude. They've allowed something in life to so consume them that that leads to isolation. By the way, sin always leads to isolation. The Holy Spirit always leads us into fellowship. Appropriateness. Of course, we have times isolation in our own prayer closets, our own time one-on-one with the Lord, of course, but that's not what we're talking about. Paul's saying that he's thrilled with the privilege of being a part of Christ's church, specifically this church that he had so much dear affection for in Philippi. And he rejoices because the Philippians had participated in the extension of the gospel work from the time that they were saved until the present moment. And that's according to when Philippians was written and when the church in Philippi in Acts 16 is recorded, is probably 10, 11 years. So he had stayed in contact here. And he's still writing and expressing that gratitude. It results from fellowship. Gratitude comes from being with one another. And oftentimes you think, well, I can't endure any more pain. I don't want to endure any more difficulties or conflict. Well, the enemy is going to try to twist something for evil, but the Holy Spirit has designed us to find our lives full of gratitude and joy as a result of spirit-filled fellowship. And then look at verse 6. There's another one here. Gratitude comes from hope or anticipation. And what a glorious verse this is. He says that I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a great verse. Many of you probably memorized it. You look at the church. You look at the way the church is. You look at the way I am by, uh, currently, the, the way you are today. And we can get depressed pretty quick. If we get myopic and we get too introspective like our psalmist was, it's very easy for us to, to find a form of depression that gets attached to that. We look at what the church is going to be, though. If I look at what the Lord is going to do with me and what he is going to do with you, then that is hope-producing. That is gratitude-giving. That's a perspective that Paul has. His gratitude pushes him to the future. I love that. I'm sure of this. Maybe your version says, I'm confident of this very thing. The verb means to be persuaded. That means to be absolutely certain. I I have no doubt is what he's saying. I'm completely confident, absolutely convinced. What, Paul? That he who began a good work in you is going to be able to complete it. Who, Who began the good work in you? God did. God began the work. The verb began is only used two times in the entire New Testament. 
here and one other time in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Both times are in regards to salvation. In Galatians 3, 3, it's that passage that you know. Have, have you begun in the spirit, Paul asked the Galatians? And are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? Are you going to try to complete and perfect the work that God started with your own flesh? You can't do that. That's the only other time this word is used. He's saying God began the good work in you. Salvation is a work of God. And the church of Philippi was proof of that in Acts 16, as I've already alluded to. It says in verse 14 of Acts 16, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. It doesn't say Lydia came to the Lord and then gave her life to the Lord. It says God opened the heart of Lydia. It's a work of God. Paul gave the gospel, but the Lord opened the heart of these saints. God did the work. God begins the work. Paul is saying, I am absolutely convinced of this very thing, that God began the work of salvation in your life. Over in verse 29 of chapter 1, as Paul continues to write here to the Philippians, he says this in verse 29, chapter 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's a wonderful passage as well. We're the passive recipients of two tremendously gracious gifts of our Lord. It's a dual gift. The first is to believe. And the second gift that he attaches to that is that because you believe, you're going to suffer. That's perspective, folks. That's a perspective that the author of Psalm 42 needed to to remind himself of. Not only does God save us, he has promised to gift us with suffering. But I'm confident of this very thing, is what he says. That God, who began a good work, he's the one who began the good work in you, is going to bring it to completion. That's anticipation. That's hope. That's excitement. That's encouragement is what he is saying. Paul's point here is I am confident. I am persuaded. I'm absolutely convinced of the very thing that God saved you. He's going to start a noble work in you. The word good here means noble. It literally means high standard of quality. It's just like when you're in the grocery store and you go to reach out and grab that apple and it's all mushy. Well, you put it nicely back where it was and you go for another one that's nice hard because you want a better quality apple. You're looking for a noble apple or whatever it is that you shop for. You don't want a bag that's full of holes and who knows what's been in it. You're looking for a better quality. That's the word. So I'm confident, I'm persuaded, I'm absolutely convinced of this very thing. God saved you. He started this greater quality work in you. And what is it? He's going to bring you to glorification. He's going to bring it to completion, he says. Paul does not say, I really hope it works out in you, and I'm going to keep praying for that. No, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you, this noble work, is going to bring it to completion, perfection at the day of the Lord. I'm absolutely confident that fills you with gratitude. 
If my eyes get off of my current situation, not ignoring it, but it's not my preoccupation, it's not my fixation, I know what God has began in me, he's going to bring it to completion. And the process that I'm in right now, whatever situation it might be, is simply part of what he's doing to complete his perfect work in me. And brothers and sisters, that should produce gratitude. Not, we're not pie in the sky. We're not like pretending like broken down furnaces is something to just be happy about. That's not, but it's, it, it's a joy and it's a gratitude beyond the circumstance. It's a gratitude that doesn't change my personality or my perspective or, heaven forbid, lead me into sin because my eyes are fixated and constantly reminded upon what God is doing and what he has promised to continue to do in my life. That's why he can write this, being chained to an imperial guard maybe six feet away from him. F.B. Meyer puts it this way. He writes in his commentary, we go into an artist's studio and find their unfinished pictures covering large canvas and suggesting great designs, but which have been left either because the genius was not competent to complete the work or because paralysis perhaps laid the hand low in death. But as we go into God's great workshop, we find nothing that bears the mark of haste. We find nothing that bears the mark of insufficiency of power to finish. And we are sure that the work which his grace has begun, the arm of his strength will complete. Amen to that truth. And brothers and sisters, that is the perseverance of the saints. That is why we call it eternal security, because the God who saved you by his power is going to keep you by his power. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, this marvelous insight Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if we were reconciled to God by his death, how much more are we going to be kept by that same reconciling power in his life? When we were enemies... You could be saved by Christ's death. How much more are we going to be kept by his life? We serve a powerful Savior. And that should produce gratitude in us. Sometimes we have to stop and remind ourselves of these truths. But it produces gratitude in us. One of the greatest things we can teach our children, parents, is gratitude. One of the harshest things we've ever tried to discipline our children for is when they express a lack of gratitude. It's not because what we gave them is so special, (laughs) but it's a reminder of, of, of the heart of being grateful for what you do have. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him that loved us. I am convinced neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father has given to me shall come to me, and I have lost none of them, but shall raise him up on the last day. Nobody's lost in the process. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. 
Because he's going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I don't want to get too technical here, but that is an important statement that Paul gives us here. At the day of Christ is very important. Oftentimes we equate that with the day of the Lord. They're two different things. When we read the phrase, the day of the Lord, which is common in the Old Testament, it's used roughly 20 times in the Old Testament, it's always dealing with judgment. But not so with this phrase. This phrase is different. This is the day of Christ Jesus. You say, well, I thought they're the same thing. Well, they are. But when they're expressed in this way, they mean something different. Jesus Christ is going to refer to the day of Jesus Christ seems to always indicate the time of glorification. The day of the Lord always seems to indicate judgment. Even here in the book of Philippians, over in verse 10, you'll see, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The idea is the time that you're going to be glorified. It says it already in uh, verse 6 as we just read. Over in chapter 2, verse 16, you're going to see it as well. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Again, indicates the idea of the day when we meet Christ and we will receive our crowns, our glorification. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he says, We are waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also confirmed to you on the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read this phrase, the day of the Jesus Christ, it seems to always indicate the day of your glorification. And this is what Paul is trying to encourage the saints with in Philippi and the Holy Spirit encouraging our hearts. I am so convinced That he, the Lord, who began a good work, the noble work of salvation, in you is going to bring it to completion, absolute perfection, when he comes back to glorify his saints. And we will be with him. And that's where gratitude is, is sourced from. Not this world. And so I can be grateful for the things that do happen to me because I know what's coming to me. I know this is not new news for you. But it is a wonderful reminder for us to keep our eyes fixed upon the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what cements us. Paul knows it. That's why he's writing it at the very beginning. And this is why he, in the midst of a very difficult time, can still exude a gratitude and a joy that is extended to this dear congregation. Because it's fixed in what Christ has already done. His finishing work of grace. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful truth. That is confidence. Allow me to just close us this morning with just some verses that will fortify this great truth in our own lives from Scripture. In Psalm 89, verse 33, the psalmist says that we are under a divine faithfulness and God will never remove it from us. You know what John 3.16 says. We have eternal life that will never end and we will never perish. In John chapter 4 verse 14, he says that we are going to drink from a spring of water that will never grow dry. In John chapter 6 verse 37 and verse 39, he says that God is going to give us a gift that cannot be lost. In John 10.28, he says that the hand of the good shepherd You are placed, and out of that hand of the good shepherd, you can never be snatched. 
In Romans 8, chapter 20, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he said that we're bound by a chain that cannot be broken. In Romans 8, 39, Paul tells us we're loved with a love which can never be separated from. We read that earlier. Romans 11, chapter 29, verse 29, excuse me, we are the recipients of a calling which can never be revoked. In 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 19, Paul tells us we're built on a foundation that can never be destroyed. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that you have an inheritance that can never fade. It's imperishable, indestructible, set aside for us. That's confidence, beloved. That's, that's confidence. And that's a call for gratitude. And so for the life of a saint, whether you're in Reformed Bible Church or Harvest Bible Church or whatever church we're from, that's gospel teaching, we're reminded that it's not the situation that we're in. It's the God who has already promised who we are and what he has already done. The one who began the good work is going to bring us to completion and that's why in verse 7 he can say, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It is not about you. It's about the one who made you and kept you and keeps you, saved you. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of, with, with me of grace. And that's kind of how we began. We are brothers and sisters, though we don't even know one another, because of the grace God has given in us. And we are to prompt one another on to having hearts of gratitude. Now, when you see an ungrateful spirit, be careful how you do that, but gently exhort and encourage what God has done for them and to be reminded of this glorious truth in our life. God is never, ever going to, when we stand before him, tell us that it was because of our unfaithfulness that he didn't save somebody. He does the work of salvation. And that is the core foundational fundamental truth of what he did for us upon the cross that secures our hope of joy and gratitude. And may God use us in a mighty way in our lives, in one another's life, in our family's life, in the church family's life, to be a church that is full of gratitude, that, dis- that, that shows a heart that is influenced by the Holy Spirit and a mind that is set upon Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Father, you know, oh, you know far above any one of us here that we are certainly not what we're supposed to be yet. None of us here have arrived None of us here are perfect. None of us are leading our families perfectly. None of us are following perfectly. None of us are showing submission perfectly, either to our parents or to one another. None of us are working perfectly in a secular environment where the dying world is watching. None of us speak perfectly. None of us think perfectly. Perfectly. 
Oh, Father, and we would be consumed in despair and continual frustration and irritation if we just kept our eyes fixed upon ourselves. We know the truth. You've gifted us with truth. But we don't want to just know it. Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning for each one of us, as we've been reminded through your word, please apply your word into our life so that we might be children of you that showcase a grateful heart for what you have done. We've been reminded, Father, that gratitude really does come from remembering what is right. Would you help us keep short accounts, Lord? Forgive us of holding on to grudges and bitterness and anger when we feel like we've been slighted. Would you help us to remember that which is right and good in others? And Father, help us to remember that gratitude comes through the gift of being able to pray for one another. You've given us this gift, Lord. Forgive us for not praying for one another more. Forgive us for being so preoccupied with our own needs and our own desires, our own issues, that we fail to be concerned about one another. Would you help us here, please? And in so doing, produce a more grateful heart in us. Father, we've been reminded that gratitude is a result of the gospel fellowship that you've called us into. We're not to be isolated islands. And so by your mercy and your grace, again, would you instill within us the passion and the purpose of genuine fellowship where we're willing to engage with one another. And Lord, help us to have grateful hearts that, that come anchored and rooted in the truth that you're coming back. That really, truly, this world is not our home. This is not all we have. And we would pray that even as we enter into a season where now all the focus is on Christmas and things, Lord, may our focus and may our heart be fixated upon the hope of your coming back. And may this fill us with gentleness and kindness and a grateful heart, Lord. Each one of us, we pray. How patient you have been to us. How kind you are to us. Oh, may we reflect that same grace to others. Thank you for all that you have done for us, O Lord. And may we never stop singing your praise and never stop singing your glorious name. Oh, bless this tender and kind and caring congregation and fill them with your love, fill them with your joy, fill them with your giftedness, your presence. And we ask all these things in the name of our Savior, our glorious coming soon Savior. Amen.